Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. Plus, sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. This is volume two, of course. We've been off the air for a year, but this is our fourth episode back. I am the host formerly known as A.G., you can follow me now at Allison Gill on Twitter. <laughs> um, and I just have to let you know, they are jackhammering right outside of my studio. So if you hear that, I do apologize. There's nothing I can do about it. I posted a photo on Twitter a couple days ago of a problem I've been trying to solve with the electric company for a year and a half. I've got a really low power line going over my yard and being held up by a dead tree in my neighbor's yard. So uh, the minute I put it on Twitter, well, now they've got a crew out here. Uh, digging a hole to put a pole in. So I apologize for that noise. But anyway, we were in a holding pattern last week, but things have loosened up quite a bit. We have news about the Rudy investigation, but actually it's more of an investigation into his sanctioned Russian-backed Ukrainian buddies. And this time it's in the Eastern District of New York. We have part of the Bill Barr memo and a roundabout excuse from the Department of Justice as to why they're not releasing the rest of it. I'll be speaking with Marcy Wheeler about that later in the show and what's behind the still-redacted Section 2 of the March 2019 OLC memo. We have information about the Trump inaugural investigation in the D.C. Attorney General's office. The Manhattan DA criminal investigation into Trump has broken wide open with a new special grand jury having been impaneled. Um, There's new unsealed Manafort documents that could put him in federal legal jeopardy despite his pardon. There's a shakeup in the Broidy pay-to-play pardon investigation. Remember that from December? There's so many things. And we have a potential witness intimidation by Weiselberg, which is interesting. And of course, the judiciary has a date this week with Don McGahn. So I want to thank everyone for listening to The Resurrected Mueller. She wrote volume two. To anyone who is disappointed in Merrick Garland's Justice Department, I just have a few things to say. It's been 11 weeks after four years of stonewalling. And given everything I just told you, Despite the fact that I'm very disappointed that the entire Bill Barr memo wasn't released, I'm seeing a reemergence of old cases and developing new stories that rival the reporting we were doing back in April of 2019. So hold on to your hats. It's going to be an interesting summer. And while no one can promise justice will be served at the degree we would like it to be, it's nice to see the wheels of justice begin to move again. And although they grind exceedingly slowly, they are moving. We do have a lot to cover, so let's jump in with just the facts. 
okay, there are so many competing lead stories that I'm just going to take them in no particular order here. Uh, but I've, I've found that they sort of flow into one another very nicely. So I've put them in an in order that makes sense. First, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance, after issuing multiple subpoenas from a former grand jury, finally getting the Mazar's documents and Trump tax returns, hiring a forensic accounting firm, and appointing former U.S. Attorney Pomerantz, has now impaneled, oh, and by the way, joining up with the New York Attorney General Tis James, uh, Manhattan DA has now impaneled a special grand jury to consider charges in the Trump Organization investigation. This is massive news for two reasons. First, it indicates Vance has evidence of a crime. Now, we don't know against whom, but it's someone involved in the Trump Organization probe, and it could be Weisselberg or any of the crotch goblins or Trump himself. Now, we may get an indication from lurking media around the building as to who is testifying before the grand jury, and there's a few things you need to know. That's the second point here. If they see Weisselberg headed in there, that will be a clue that Weisselberg has flipped and is cooperating because, as I spoke, you know, as we heard from Harry Littman earlier this week on The Daily Beans, in New York State, their grand jury rules are different. Anyone who testifies before the grand jury has immunity, and you can't testify to hearsay. The only other option would be if Weisselberg waived his right to immunity, which would be really fucking stupid. Although, you know, I will not say he's not beyond doing really stupid shit. This week, it's being reported that his daughter-in-law is being evicted from her apartment by Weisselberg, and it's an apartment he owns and controls. Uh, any dipshit with a podcast app knows that's possible witness intimidation, so that's, um, you know, I don't know, Weisselberg. Go ahead and keep racking up charges. All the better to roll you with. And Weisselberg gets around. Uh, besides the fact that we learned this week that New York Attorney General Tish James has had an open and ongoing criminal investigation into him for at least five months, and besides the fact that the Manhattan DA is going after his kid to roll him on the Trump org, it seems he's got crimes in every port. Because it was pointed out by David Korn this week that Weiselberg is tied up in the D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine's civil investigation. This is in D.C., not New York. That's the investigation into the Trump inaugural fund. If you remember, many moons ago, emails were unveiled uh, in a court filing between Weiselberg and our old fantasy indictment draft lister, Tom Barrick, uh, back when the news was breaking about how the hell a dickbag like Trump doubled the inaugural fund of Obama, raking in $107 million, some of which, by the way, was from Russian-backed straw donors that Sam Patton was indicted for. No one could figure out what all that money was spent on. That includes the Presidential Inauguration Committee, or PIC, P-I-C. And in fact, there are emails showing Tom Barrick sent Weisselberg an email asking him to take a look at the books, at the, at the PIC financials, because, oh my God, it seems like the balance sheet doesn't balance. I bet that Weisselberg could fix that. Yet during depositions, Barrick uh, pretended like he really didn't know who Weisselberg was. Just like Ivanka. They're all lying their faces off. Trump Jr. made several false or contradictory statements as well. And this just in today, documents due in D.C. Superior Court Friday could clear the way for uh, Weisselberg to be deposed in the D.C. Attorney General lawsuit. Um, a lawyer for Weisselberg declined to comment. The Trump Organization has asked a judge to rule in its favor, and the attorney general failed to adduce any competent evidence and called the allegations frequently fanciful. That's a, <laughs> a lawyer and a lawyer for the company declined to comment. 
Now, the D.C. Attorney's General Office first said in March that it wanted to depose Weisselberg as part of its review of the inaugural committee and their finances, but agreed to wait for the judge to rule on motions for summary judgment. The final documents related to those motions are due Friday, and sometime after that, the judge will make a final ruling on the outstanding motions and decide whether to reopen the discovery window, extend it. This is, you know, because Racine asked for an extension so that we could get Weisselberg's deposition. Of course, this is just a civil suit because Trump and Barr allies have been helming the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, the criminal one. That's the one that brings criminal charges for a while now, federal. Remember, Mike Sherwin and Tim Shea. Remember, they helped coordinate the effort to keep Flynn and Stone out of prison by going against their own sentencing guidelines. And Sherwin was the guy that went on 60 Minutes to try to tank the insurrection investigation by giving out specific details of an open and ongoing investigation. He's also the guy that shut down the investigation of the Egyptian infusion of cash that Trump took. That's the investigation Mueller handed off to him. So Sherwin took over in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office after Tim Shea left. And Tim Shea took over after Barr tricked Jessie Liu out of leaving her post by promising her a job at the Treasury Department and then withdrawing the offer when she was walking over to her new office. Trump withdrew that offer. Barr had tried to get rid of her before, but she resisted um, that other job offer. They offered her the number three uh, job at the DOJ because she wanted to stay in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, all of this to say, we haven't had a white hat in that D.C. federal office until now. Um, And who we have now is just acting. But the new U.S. attorneys haven't been installed yet, so... Perhaps criminal referrals for the inaugural can be made by D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine, who is conducting that civil investigation. Uh, Maybe he can hand those off to a now friendly D.C. U.S. attorney for criminal investigation. I'll obviously keep an eye on it for you. And wouldn't you know it, we were right. Manafort gave internal polling data to a Russian spy. That's collusion. It's actually conspiracy. I'll talk about that in a minute. It took just a few years to confirm that. Manafort lied to Mueller, so Mueller didn't have enough evidence for his report or to charge him with that particular crime. Trump lied to him about it, and for some reason, Mueller didn't subpoena Trump or send follow-up questions to his written answers. But actually, let me correct myself there. They did have enough evidence to get Manafort based on other documents and emails and testimony of Rick Gates. Now, I can only assume um, that... You know, it was because when the Mueller didn't follow up on those questions or subpoena Trump because he was trying not to get fired so he could get all the obstruction of justice charges in, on the record while memories were fresh in the hopes that Trump could be charged after leaving office. And I'll get to that later as well. But back to Manafort. In court documents recently unsealed by Judge Amy Berman Jackson, Manafort lied repeatedly to Mueller about sharing the polling data and he lied about his relationship with Kalimnik who has gone from Russian adjacent to barely Russian to mostly a Russian agent to full-blown sanctioned spy over the past three years. We had put beans on Manafort handing data to Kalimnik at the Grand Havana Cigar Bar inside Kushner's 666 Fifth Avenue Devil Building. Right around the same time, a fellow named Oleg Deripaska landed his private jet in Newark, and then they met and the data went back on the plane with Deripaska to his yacht by way of picking up a Russian prime minister. Uh, where where uh, Deripaska shared that information with the prime minister. Now, a sex coach named Nastia Rybka filmed all that, then was thrown in a Thai jail. Then Navalny released the tape, and we know what's happening with him. In any case, what we thought was true is all true, and the document, but now it's documented for the first time, for all to see in these court filings. These court documents, incidentally, were the ones filed by prosecutors to show he blew up his plea deal by lying. It was all redacted back when it came out. We were just guessing. Now, of course, Manafort was pardoned, but it's important to note the Trump pardon is only for crimes that Manafort was convicted of. 
We learned in Andrew Weisselberg's book, Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation, that they could have but did not charge Manafort with conspiracy. Because remember, there's no such crime of, as, as collusion. But they had him dead to rights uh, in an open and shut tax fraud case. And, and so that they went with that. So Trump's idiotic pardon doesn't cover this. And while it happened five years ago, this August, which is the statute of limitations for most federal crimes, I'd like to point out that the pardon happened six months ago. And if that's part of the cover-up and obstruction, it's inextricably linked to the crime. So the statute of limitations would actually expire December 24th, 2025. Merry fucking Christmas, Manafort. And we know Rudy is in trouble in the Southern District. We've been covering that. But did you know the rival gang across town in the Eastern District of New York has a criminal investigation going into uh, Russian-backed Ukraine interference in the 2020 presidential election? You probably did because Forensic News Network broke that story a month ago. But the New York Times called it breaking news this week. The only thing we learned new from the New York Times is that it's the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn and that the New York Times flubbed the Artemenko information. Basically, the FBI has been investigating sanctioned Russian agents and Kaludi Rudy pal, um, Andre Durkach, for one, and whether or not he's been using Rudy to interfere in our 2020 elections by way of stuff like the Hunter Biden dossier and supplying debunked Russian intelligence to folks like Russia, Ron Johnson and Lindsey Graham via Rudy Giuliani. The Eastern District investigation so far doesn't have Rudy as a target or a subject, but that could change. And Ellie Honig said on CNN, there's a bit, of, a bit of a rivalry and perhaps some overlap between the Southern District and the Eastern District. We'll keep an eye on both. Please read that Forensic News Network piece. It's called Giuliani Probe Expands Ukrainian Ally Under Criminal Investigation. It came out April 30th. And uh, remember the trash heap known, known as Elliot Broidy? He spent a great deal of time on our fantasy indictment draft, but was pardoned at the end. And remember in uh, December when Judge Beryl Howell unsealed some documents in a really old, weird pay-for-pardon scheme? The 18-page opinion was about the Department of Justice request to see the emails involving an unnamed attorney, and we were all trying to guess who it was. Turned out to be Kushner's lawyer, Abby Lowell, who at the time was also representing someone named Nikki Davis. That just happens to be the person Broidy pled guilty to Farah charges with in a scheme to loot Malaysia's 1MDB fund. Remember that story, Jolo? <laughs> Anyhow, it was Abby Lowell and Broidy that were emailing back and forth to lobby Trump for a pardon for some rich guy by taking a bribe from some other rich guy. Well, it appears that while Lowell was trying to get a plea deal arranged with Davis, Lowell himself was under federal investigation for the pardon scheme. So Davis got a new lawyer and is still cooperating in the Jolo case. Trump did not pardon her. Broidy's dispute with his legal team, which ins he insists the split was friendly, came about through a separate uh, circumstance. According to a source familiar with the episode, Broidy grew concerned late last year at Weingarten's comments to the media defending Lowell in the pardon probe, given Broidy's ties to that inquiry. Weingarten is another high-powered attorney that spoke out in defense of Lowell in the bribery scheme, saying Lowell had done nothing wrong. And Broidy was like, that's weird. Around the same time, Broidy was, playing, uh, was paying Steptoe, which is Weingarten's law firm, millions to handle a hard-fought, lucrative civil litigation Broidy brought in 2018 against Cutter. Broidy suits accused Cutter and its allies of breaking into his emails and leaking them to the press in what he termed a hack-and-smear campaign, stemming from his work with groups seeking to put the spotlight on what they alleged were Cutter's ties to terrorism. That's really interesting because of the whole MBS 
um, Kushner relationship and, uh, you know, trying to put that blockade against Qatar. And then somebody's double building got purchased and, and bought out, you know, the, the debt was paid. And really, and then the, the block was lifted. So that sounds like FARA violations to me. In addition, shortly after going to work for Brody on the litigation against Qatar, Steptoe agreed to lobby in the United States for a company controlled by the Qatari government. It's Qatar Aluminum Limited. And while Steptoe had overseen the hack and smear litigation since its inception, Brody's criminal liability under FARA for the matters was handled by Jeff Knox of Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett and George Terwilliger of McGuire Woods. I know you remember him. And on March 1st, McGuire Woods' lawyers replaced Steptoe and Broidy's sprawling civil litigation. That's according to court dockets. So Terwilliger took over for Steptoe because Broidy hates Cutter and they were lobbying for Cutter. Meanwhile, the Justice Department's investigation into others involved Broidy and Davis's work for Jolo. Again, that's the Malaysian businessman at the heart of the one MB, uh, MBD scandal. And that, that continues. That's ongoing. Of course, Broidy's been pardoned. Earlier this month, following a court ruling that flagged Davis's travel to Washington to testify to a grand jury, a Politico reporter observed her entering the federal courthouse near the Capitol, accompanied by a lawyer who recently took over her case, James Bryant Jr. Davis spent about four hours inside the grand jury. They met on May 6th. So might be hearing more about that. All right, everybody, I'll be back with a breakdown of what we got and what we didn't get in the Barr memo release. Stay with us. Hello, listeners of Mueller, She Wrote. This is AG, and this portion of the show is brought to you by BetterHelp. They provide licensed, professional, convenient online counseling. Life is amazing. It's truly wonderful. It's a gift. But there can be anxiety and stress. It can be unpredictable. Things can get overwhelming. And when I'm feeling the pressure and anxiety of tough situations, what I like to think about is that I don't have to face it alone. And neither do you. If you're dealing with anything preventing you from living your best life, I highly recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp provides professional counseling to help you navigate challenges. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in fewer than 24 hours. You know, I've had my own challenges with anxiety and post-traumatic stress. So again, I know how important it is to seek help rather than to try to take it on by yourself. And I love how convenient BetterHelp's services are. They're available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime from anywhere and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating really, really a wonderful therapeutic matches, which is so important. So they make it easy and free to change your counselor if you want to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And of course, financial aid's available. So visit their website and read some testimonials like BetterHelp user AD who says, Dr. Hood has been great. From the first session until now, months later, she helps tremendously with mitigating my stress and anxiety. She helps me see different perspectives and makes me feel seen and heard. I'm better able to understand and process my emotions thanks to Dr. Hood. So visit BetterHelp.com AG. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P with a P. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Mueller She Wrote listeners. You get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com AG. All right, everybody, welcome back. I want to go over some of the stuff in the newly unsealed Amy Berman Jackson opinion and um, the bar memo. Uh, what's really interesting is that, you know, I, I, I think I said multiple times, I think he's going to release part of it and not the other part. He's going to try to defend the deliberative process privilege, but also not let Barr off the hook. And that seems to be what's happened here. Although I will say, and I will reiterate this several times, I'm very disappointed that the entire thing was not released because Judge Jackson's opinion was so succinct 
and made so much sense and had so much case citation that it just legally made sense. And I, I'm looking at the Department of Justice's response, and I'm not quite understanding what their argument is. So, you know, going through the newly unsealed opinion here, it's this: everything in the beginning is the same. You know, she goes over the FOIA Exemption 5 definitions. She talks about the attorney-client privilege. If you want to get it out, I'm on page 12 here scrolling. Um, so you can pause now, grab that memo. It's 210525, ABJ Unsealed Memo. You can find it on Marcy Wheeler's uh, blog, Empty Wheel. Um, anyway, I'm on page 12 here where it says it's, she goes over the attorney-client privilege. Next page, she talks about that for the next couple pages. Then she does an analysis. She says document six was properly withheld. And then uh, there on page 15, document 15 must be released. And then we see the redacted portion of the first page of the memo. And that has all been unredacted now. Uh, then on page 17, defendant has not met its burden to justify withholding the deliberative process privilege. We went over this with Andrew McCabe uh, on the second, I think the first episode of Mueller she wrote four weeks ago. Uh, and just keep scrolling down to page 20, 21. It starts becoming redacted. Yes. So if we talk about not meeting the burden to justify withholding, she says the memorandum is largely deliberative, but the court cannot find the record to be pre-decisional because the materials in the record, including the memorandum itself, contradict the FOIA declarant's assertions that the decision-making process they have identified was in fact underway. Moreover, the record supplies reasons to question whether the communication preceded any decision that was made. And that's where she starts talking about what she means by that, pre-decisional. And, and there on page 17, document 15, this memo is a pre-decisional deliberative memorandum to the attorney general through the deputy attorney general authored by o OLC Engel and Principal Haydag Edward O'Callaghan as indicated in the portions of the memorandum that were released. It was submitted to the attorney general to assist him in determining whether the facts set forth in volume two would support indicting or declining the prosecution of the president for obstruction of justice under the principles of federal prosecution. So what that says is clearly that it's, you know, they're trying to d decide whether or not they would indict the president. And Judge Jackson says that's not pre that's not deliberative. You already had made that decision a long time ago when you wrote that 20 page memo that presidents couldn't obstruct justice and. And that when the OLC, you talked about the OLC memo not being able to indict a sitting president. Now, DOJ has come back and said, oh, yeah, sorry about that. What we meant was uh, we meant to say this was submitted to the attorney general to assist him in determining whether the facts set forth in volume two uh, rise to the level of criminal obstruction of justice. We weren't trying to decide to indict him. We were trying to decide if if we could indict him, you know. If we didn't have this constitutional bar, then, uh, you know, we, we had to decide and we decided not that that's not the case, which is based on a hypothetical. And Amy Berman Jackson points that out. So Department of Justice's response to this doesn't make it much sense to me at all. Um, she goes on to say the Brinkman Declaration reveals that as senior counsel in the Department of Justice, Office of Information Policy, OIP, she's responsible for supervising the handling of FOIA requests. Brinkman Declination says she uh, does 
not claim to have any personal knowledge of why the document was created or what its purpose might be. And while she states generally at the beginning of the declaration that she consulted with knowledgeable department personnel, she does not state that she spoke with any particular person to gain firsthand information about the provenance of this document. Instead, she appears to rely on her review of the document itself to make the following unattributed pronouncements. Uh, while the March 29 memorandum, 2019 memorandum is a final document as opposed to a draft, the memo as a whole contains pre-decisional recommendation and advice. So she relied on the document itself to determine that the document was pre-decisional, and Amy Berman Jackson pointed that out. Uh, a little bit later, um, page 19, second paragraph, what the court can say without revealing the content of the redacted material is that there were two sections. Section one offers strategic as opposed to legal advice about whether the attorney general should take a particular course of action, and it made recommendations with respect to that determination, a subject that the agency omitted entirely from its description of the document for the justification of its withholding. So Amy, Amy Berman Jackson is saying, hey, you said you withheld this document for the deliberative process, but section one isn't deliberative. It's... It's just advice as to whether to take a, a particular court of, uh, course of action and made recommendations. So you have to unseal that. And Merrick Garland agreed, so he did. And what, what the unsealed memo here shows is that the Department of Justice, under Barr, with Engel, Rabbit, Rosenstein had some emails involved in this, and uh, the PayDag, Ed, Ed O'Callaghan, basically conspired to create a public message about the president not committing obstruction of justice uh, and that, that and lied about the fact that because Mueller didn't make a determination, he could. Now, because Mueller didn't, that left the door open for Barr. And I've talked about this, and I'm going to talk to Marcy Wheeler about it. But had Mueller made a determination without Trump being able to defend himself in a court of law because you can't indict him, that could have given him a pretty good reason for appeal were he ever charged with obstruction of justice. And I think the intention here, for Mueller at least, was that he be prosecuted when he left office. And he didn't want to jeopardize that. That's my thought on the matter. I've said it a million times. And we will see what happens. We will see what happens. Because uh, of what's coming up after the Marcy Wheeler interview, with sabotage. But for right now, let's um, let's talk to Marcy Wheeler. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin. President Putin was extremely strong and powerful. Spies. Active measures. Actively meropriatia in the language of the KGB. Mobsters. And uh, Donald Trump obviously does a lot of construction. And so many traitors. Over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things, and uh, all of those things have turned out to be false. Alternative facts. I drank beer with my friends. Almost everyone did. Sometimes I had too many beers. Sometimes others did. I liked beer. Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. The best is yet to come. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. 
Hey, everybody, welcome back. I am happy to be joined today by Marcy Wheeler and her blog, Empty Wheel, which is seriously, I've been following it since the beginning, full of incredible information. And if you're not already following her coverage of the insurrection, you should definitely be doing that, too, because it's extremely detailed. But what I have you on today for, Marcy, is the piece that you penned uh, on your blog about what else could be behind the redacted portions of Section 2 of the Barr memo that this Department of Justice is appealing the release of. And, and I've been going over this earlier in the show, sort of line by line, the DOJ's response. And I'm having a hard time putting together exactly what the argument is for not releasing Section 2. Do you have a, a handle on what they're trying to say? Well, the basic argument is they always like to withhold OLC memos under what's called the deliberative process um, exemption. And so they're doing it here because they are arguing that when Steve Engel and Ed O'Callaghan made this recommendation to Bill Barr, that was pre-decisional. It's not necessarily the logic that Barr used in agreeing to their to their logic. Um, obviously, he signed it right there. Um, I think one of the other things that's going on that's really important for people to understand is it was billed all along as an OLC memo. And this is something that Amy Berman Jackson complained about and DOJ just completely blew off in the response. Um, and, and yet it's not just Engel who's on the memo. It's also Ed O'Callaghan, right? And uh, as your listeners undoubtedly remember, he's the guy who was overseeing Mueller on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so if I'm Amy Broom Jackson and I want to release this, I say, look, this isn't an OLC memo. This is a hybrid Frankenstein thing. Um, and in DOJ's response to Amy Broom Jackson, I kid you not, they said, OLC says OLC is not authorized to basically get out of its lane in DOJ. They use a reference to FBI. They say, because OLC has no authorization to get involved in FBI policies, any advice they give to FBI would, not, would be pre-decisional. Except this is a prosecutorial decision they're making. And OLC has no business getting involved in prosecutorial decisions because they're OLC, they're not the prosecutors. Well, the way DOJ gets around that is they stick out Ed O'Callaghan on the memo, right? Okay. He's not OLC, but Ed O'Callaghan, according to OLC, can't make final decisions about prosecuting the president. And so neither of them is doing what they're allowed to do. Um, and then you've got the signature on it. Yeah, so I mean, literally what DOJ is doing is they're saying there are certain OLC opinions that we will call pre-decisional, pre-deliberate, you know, deliberative process. Um, and, and that's what we're doing here. And it may be the least damning or the least interesting uh, interpretation of their response is we're gonna let Amy Berman Jackson release the really damning stuff and we're gonna treat everything else like it was normal, but it wasn't normal. Yeah, and didn't they also, didn't DOJ also say, hey, um, but this isn't a prosecutorial decision. Everybody knew that they weren't going to prosecute. What it really was, was a, a discussion about whether or not what was in the Mueller report volume two met the level needed to prosecute obstruction of justice. Not that, not that we were going to prosecute or not, because we knew we weren't. It just seemed like, I don't know. It right, just but seemed... then once you get there, once you get to that level, then... <laughs> It's a way to get to yes. Yeah. Once no is off the table, 
And even in, in section one, they say, well, you know, we can't have it. We can't have this hanging over the present. We can't have it, you know, this non-accusation. And it was just, I mean, the response was ridiculous. They're like, well, you know, DOJ in the memo itself, DOJ only prosecutes or doesn't prosecute. And by not doing anything, we violated DOJ's rules. And then they go on to do the same thing. They violate their own OLC memo. They violate past OLC memos. They violate the memo that says you can't you know, make these prosecutorial decisions about a president. They do it all wrong. Um, and so on that basis, I think, you know, Amy Byrne Jackson, if she wants to, should be able to say, you know, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And if not, I think crew will have a very interesting appeal. Yeah. And the whole thing, again, was based on the, the memo was based on a hypothetical, you know, barring constitutional problems or whatever, you know, constitutional restrictions. You know, this is the question we were answering. It's like, well, why are you even pondering a hypothetical situation. I think that Amy Berman Jackson made that very clear. Uh, I understood what she was trying to say, but the, the logic behind keeping Section 2 behind just didn't make much sense to me, as, as you're explaining. Now, we talk, I, I talked about yesterday and, and maybe the day before on, on our show, the Daily Beans we talked about what was behind the redaction bars on Section 2, because what was actually released is very damning. But... You know, we figured what was behind the, what they're holding back is the pro, you know, all of their sort of talking with each other about why these crimes didn't rise to obstruction of justice. But you point out something very important and very interesting. And that was also that the, that there were pardons dangled. And can you talk a little bit about what else you think is behind those redaction bars? Well, OK, so basically what's behind those redaction bars is they take what they claim is 10 alleged instances of obstruction of justice. We can count it different ways, but we know what those 10 are because we've read the Mueller report and, 700 And that amazing times. chart, right? That shows, right. yeah. Right, I mean, so you get to 14, I think if you use Quintus chart, but, but nevertheless, we know exactly what the allegations are that they had to address. And most of them, and, and they kind of nod to this in part one, they said, you know, a lot of these we don't think could even be a crime. And that, is the same argument that Bill Barr got hired by. He says, if the president is hiring and firing people, those can't be obstruction of justice because those are presidential duties. So then take those out, take those 11 or 10 allegations out that relate to hiring and firing. And what are you left with? You're left with that part of volume two of the Mueller report that says, dangling a pardon to Paul Manafort dangling a pardon to Roger Stone. Remember, that part was really heavily redacted before before his trial. Yeah, and, dangling and a pardon. Judge Jackson had read all of that early on as well. She's the only one who's read all of this, right? <laughs> and then dangling a pardon to Mike Flynn. All of those are not just things not covered. I mean, you know, Bill Barr might have argued those are also... Uh, those are also presidential things, right? Those, you know, the absolute prerogative to pardon whoever you want, except that Bill Barr testified in his confirmation <laughs> hearing three times said, oh yeah, that's a crime. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, the first time he was asked by Pat Leahy, he was like, oh yeah, that's a crime. And so what he effectively did or what Engel and O'Callaghan did after Bill Barr had already said that yes, that you have to do analysis of pardoned angles to figure out whether they're a crime or not. And that's literally what Bill Barr said to the Senate, okay? Um, so in fewer than eight pages, Engel and O'Callaghan necessarily go through some kind of analysis where they say, these pardoned angles 
for Manafort, Stone, uh, Flynn, and also Cohen. Yep. These pardon dangles did not amount to obstruction of justice. And the point I make is when they made that decision, those, with the exception of Cohen, who had already pled guilty and already decided to cooperate, uh, you know, over the the object, you know, over the objections of Trump. And Flynn was in this kind of middle point now, like weeks later, literally weeks later, he decided he was going to blow up his his plea agreement for good reason, because Barr had just said, you know, that Trump can pardon you and it won't be obstruction. And so, so in those eight pages, they necessarily have to pretend to analyze the pardon dangles in at least enough depth to be able to distinguish what Barr said clearly in public, oh yeah, you know, that would be a crime from what Trump had done. And the problem with that is what I'm arguing. The problem with that is that crime wasn't committed. You can't do that analysis on March 24th, 2019, because you don't know what's going to come next. You don't even know. I mean, Stone was not, he hadn't been tried yet, right? This was, this was months, this was six months, say eight, eight months before his trial. Stone alleges when he was threatening Trump last year to keep him out of prison, Stone actually alleged that between the time of that decision and the time of his trial, prosecutors who he, you know, must falsely claim is Jeannie Ree. Um, he claims that prosecutors went to him and said, if you tell us the content of these 29 conversations we know that you had with Donald Trump, then we'll make sure you don't do prison time. So, so, so Stone at least claims that after the time that Bill Barr said this pardon dangle was not a crime, the pardon dangle was still doing the work that it needed to do. And so that's, you know, like there are a lot of legal reasons why the B5 shouldn't work in this case, which is the hybrid stuff, the Frankenstein stuff. Like, is it an OLC memo or is it a prosecutorial memo? If it's one, then it violates OLC. If it's the other, it violates OLC. That's the basis on which Amy Berman injections should say, no, release it. You know, this is not a memo. This is an atrocity. But, uh, but the content of it is all the more interesting because we know it must deal with those pardons. We know Barr was on the record saying that those pardons could be a crime, had to be analyzed in detail. And you can't do that level of analysis in eight pages. You just simply can't. Right. Especially if you're going to contradict what you testified to Congress about in your confirmation hearing. Uh, but I imagine his argument was something like, well, president can't obstruct justice, just like he wrote in his 20 page audition memo uh, about executive power, sweeping executive power or, or something about the pardon power being absolute. And so dangling a pardon couldn't possibly be obstruction of justice as long as you're the president of the United States. So and it, then he gets confirmed yeah. by saying that it's a crime. He gets confirmed after having auditioned with this theory that the president can't obstruct and then gets confirmed. One of those questions was Lindsey Graham. It wasn't just Democrats who were interested in whether he recognized that pardoned English could be a crime. Um, and he gets confirmed having said, yes, this is a crime. Yeah, This can be a crime at least. And then somehow on March 24th, 2019, he decided it wasn't a crime. <laughs> well, I, uh, I for one uh, look forward to what Amy Berman Jackson has to say about this Department of Justice filing. Uh, I'm disappointed that they're not releasing the entire memo. Uh, I think it needs to be released. And, um, you know, I mean, we even joked 
multiple times on Twitter, I have like 12 tweets of me just making jokes about, oh, well, don't worry. Uh, Bill Barr will just write a post hoc, have a have a post hoc OLC memo whipped up and uh, you won't have to worry about it anymore. He did it with Ukraine and Mm -hmm. being able to withhold the funds. He did it multiple times, right? Like, well, no, I got an OLC memo now that says so and such and such and such. And so it's just I I still find it hard to follow the Department of Justice's argument on this uh, in this Department of Justice. And I I think it's just because it it doesn't make legal sense. So we'll we'll see what happens. But I, I hope Judge Jackson swats it down. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcy. Everybody check out Empty Wheel uh, because you will not be disappointed. And thank you so much for your time. And also, you seriously have to follow her, uh, her coverage of the insurrection investigations. It's it's getting interesting, (laughs) to say the least. Thank you so much, Marcy Wheeler. Hey, take care. Thanks for having me on. Hey, everybody. It's AG. And I am happy and proud to announce we are launching our very own podcast network. It's called MSW Media, and it's going to feature the work of some incredibly talented and intelligent people, including Glenn Kirshner with Justice Matters, On Topic with Renato Mariotti, Prevail by Greg Oliar, Opening Arguments with Andrew Torres and Thomas Smith, The Bureau with Frank Fagluzzi. And that's just to name a few. Of course, there's The Daily Beans, Muller She Wrote, and our newest show, Clean Up on Aisle 45. Our network is woman-run and veteran-owned, and our mission is to curate news, politics, and justice and engage voters. I am so proud of this community and this group of content creators, so please check us out at mswmedia.com and listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for Sabotage. All right, this week we found out that uh, remember last week talked about McGahn reaching an agreement with the House Judiciary Committee uh, that he would testify and he would only keep I talked to Andrew Weissman about it, former Mueller prosecutor, and he would only keep his uh, the questions had to be about what's in the public of publicly available portions of the Mueller report, which is most of it in volume two. Let's be let's be fair. Uh, and and that sort of that that Trump had nothing to do with this, and we we learned that Trump actually tried to object, but his lawyers decided not to at the last minute, probably because Trump released the fucking Mueller report, and so that sort of waives your right to <laughs> to executive privilege. Uh, but anyway, um, that whole thing uh, with McGahn, that agreement, he's agreed to testify, and I said, oh look, they want an update, they're go- or they're they're saying they're going to update the court with a status report on June 11th. That means they're doing this fast. Well, they are. That is going to happen. This is the sabotage. That that um, testimony will happen this week, likely Wednesday. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Now we can imagine. Uh, We don't have to imagine. It says uh, that they're going to take seven days in the agreement, agreed upon testimony situation, that they're all going to review the transcript. It's going to be behind closed doors, which I'm very thankful for, honestly. Uh, They're going to review the transcripts. Everyone has seven days to review, and then they'll make the final changes and release it. So probably by the end of next week, we might be able to see that transcript. Now, it's not going to say anything mind-blowing because he can only testify to shit that we already know. But what can happen next is what's important, because at that point, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee could make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. Not that Merrick Garland couldn't have taken this up already, but I feel like going through the process, you know how these, you know how they like to go through the process. (laughs) It's called CYA in the government, right? Cover your ass. Oh, um, I didn't just pick this up and decide to start prosecuting it. 
Republicans. What I did uh, was uh, nothing. And then the Congress came to me, a committee, and said, yeah, we're making a criminal referral. So I looked into it. And I can't ignore. Uh, the, the law will not allow me to ignore that at least four of these rise to the to the um, the level needed uh, to charge obstruction of justice. We'll see what happens. I, for one, hope he prosecutes obstruction of justice. I hope a lot of these cases are picked up. The Egypt payment um, that was uh, being looked at uh, in by the feds. Uh, I, there's so many. There were well, there were 14 redacted handoffs in Appendix D of the Mueller report, Volume Two. So we'll see what happens. But that means now that we've done sabotage, it's time to play the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, wait, it's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I'm going to be indicted! Hold it, they can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted! All right, so many choices this week. I'm actually going to go with Durkach or maybe some rando... Ukrainians, which are, you know, these are Russian-backed Ukrainians, so we can go back to saying rando Russians, I, I would say. Uh, I'm also going to keep Gates up there. It's getting gross. He's getting weird. You know, him, he's on tour with the Taint team, which is what I call Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Matt Gates. They're the Taint team. Um, so I'm going to pick Gates also. Keeping Trump on there. I know it's early. They still got a ways to go. Same with Rudy. You know, they still have to do this. But they still even have an appoint, appointed a special master. So yeah, um, it's going to be a while. And uh, Tonesing. Uh, but I'm going to put Tonesing as a cooperation agreement. We'll see what happens there. She seems, she's gross. She's a horrible criminal, but she seems like a smaller fish than Parnas, Fruman, Korea, Fraud Guarantee, Furtosh, etc. So those are my picks this week, and we will see what happens. Uh, again, you know, just because I'm drafting these folks, I just want to reiterate, justice takes a, a long time. And uh, Merrick Garland just got there, what, 11 weeks ago? So must be patient. I know it's hard and it sucks, but things are starting to break open. And I think we should have, I think we should keep a little faith in, 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 this, de in this Department of Justice until we shouldn't. And, you know, I am disappointed that they didn't release that bar memo. So... A little chip, a little chip away there for me. But we'll keep you posted. And, you know, as always, everyone, thank you so much uh, for listening. Thanks to Marcy Wheeler. Please check out Empty Wheel. She has so much incredible, incredible in-depth information. Her murder board game is off the hook. Anyway, please join us next week. And then you can also check us out every morning, every weekday morning for the News with the Daily Beans podcast. Would love to see you there. Everyone, until then, please take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Take care of your mental health and take care of the planet. I've been Allison Gill, and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. 
Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Now, what do you mean, for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that oh, right? Sorry. What We're no, Drinking? It's amazing. It, it's it amazing. Right, it just... Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Tees, friends, and listen to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.